Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with our friend and partner in science and clinical translation, a world-renowned cardiologist, Dr. Joel Kahn. He is a true champion of preventive cardiology and whole person care and passionately lectures throughout the country about the health benefits of a plant-based diet, inspiring people to think scientifically and critically about the body's ability to stave off disease and heal itself through proper nutrition. He's written many books, the latest one being The Plant-Based Solution. In this episode, we talk about his story and the latest approaches to health, as well as some controversial issues of the day. He's incredibly knowledgeable, and I know we will have more conversations with him in the near future. I hope you enjoy this. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for your time, uh, for joining us here to talk to us about amazing organs, brain and the heart. And we're, we're big fans of yours. We're we love you, all of your work. You've done amazing things. And just to sit here with you and talk to you, it's such a pleasure. So thank you. Well, that's kind of you. I'd rather be in San Bernardino or somewhere in the sun with you. I have the shades pulled just so you don't get depressed how great it is here oh, in, no. uh, in Michigan. But, uh, you know, we go through our cycles and we don't have forest fires. So you have to yes, appreciate every day. Yeah, exactly. That is absolutely right. That is absolutely right. Yeah, it's been pretty crazy on our end here in Los Angeles, too. Um, I am I'm really excited to um, have this conversation going. I think we could probably talk to Dr. Khan for days. Yes. There's just so much overlap in our areas of interest and work. You deal with the heart, we deal with the brain, but when you look at the unifying theory, it's essentially the same, isn't it? Um, so many common conditions we're both trying to stop have very similar root causes, I agree. And when we help one, we often help the other, which is just phenomenal uh, synergy of the body. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're an author. You're, my goodness. I mean, you've done so much. And, uh, you know, you, you started this whole movement uh, towards prevention and longevity and, you know, using a plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet when nobody was talking about it. So you've got... I was in my early teens at the time, probably. <laughs> well, let's, let's give a very deserved shout out to Dr. Ornish, to Nathan Pritikin, yeah. to Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Furman. Uh, it's true that I've had one, maybe the longest cardiology career in the United States mm -hmm. uh, as a vegan, healthy vegan too. So I've had the opportunity for 30 years to uh, be a very aggressive cath lab, heart attack, stent doctor. But I left the tribe and became the, uh, the black sheep uh, talking prevention, talking uh, procedures should be a last resort, which is actually very big news in cardiology of late, uh, reevaluating the actual role of these very famous procedures like bypass and stents. So I think I got out uh, at the peak because yeah. the stock is dropping and prevention and whole food plant-based diet stock is rising, if you will take a financial analogy. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how did you start on this journey? Like what, what was it that moved you? This is not an emotional story. I'm not going to make up a story that I was deathly ill and I found, you know, alfalfa sprouts and then restored my bone marrow or so. And I honor people that have a story. Yeah. I, uh, I had a murmur as a baby. I started seeing a pediatric cardiologist. Bada boom. I knew I wanted to be a cardiologist when I was about seven. I mean, it's like your kids. I wasn't that precocious like your amazing children, but that was pretty clear. I grew up in a kosher home where we didn't eat milk and meat together. I had food rules. Uh, and at age 18 at the University of Michigan, the only thing that worked with my cute little girlfriend has been my wife of nearly 40 years. Uh, was a salad bar and truly we both transitioned to an almost completely we didn't call it vegan or whole food nobody did back then but we ate almost exclusively and my, almost simultaneously my parents went to the Pritikin longevity center in santa monica at the time now it's in miami and i came home maybe from the first three months in ann arbor and instead of a meatloaf there was a lentil loaf so it was like two combined <laughs> forces i read john robbins died for new america pretty right. soon after that it kind of sealed the deal that this little salad bar decision had a whole lot more depth to it because I did not have any clue at the time. and couldn't exactly watch the Game Changers on Netflix because this was 1977, 78, 79 and such. Mm -hmm. 
it was uh, for those not listening, we haven't always had the internet. And in fact, we used to have Encyclopedia Britannica. And I know, I remember, I remember the encyclopedia in our library. And, and the only last milestone is I did my cardiology training. I did do cath lab, very aggressive uh, training. And that ended July 1, 1990. I returned back to Michigan and Ann Arbor at the university. And three weeks later is when Dean Ornish, MD, very famous, perhaps the godfather of preventive uh, trials in medicine, published his first major paper, the Lifestyle Heart Trial. So I had about three weeks, somebody asked me, what do you do? I said, I'm a cath lab interventional cardiologist. Mm. I happen to eat this diet at home that I don't talk about much. But three weeks later, I sort of started answering, well, I guess I'm a nutrition and a interventional cardiologist. I actually trademarked the word interpreventional. I intervened, I I can do the whole gamut. So it was a bunch of, you know, little small decisions, little coincidences. But as I say, it's allowed me to kind of watch this whole thing explode. And the last five years have been so much fun to see so many doctors like yourselves and researchers and publications. We got so much more to learn, but we got a much better foundation than we did 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. And you are doing such a great service for uh, for the general population as, you know, as a true warrior for public health with your courses and your books and your, you know, you're the you're the Hollywood doctor. You're on the doctor's <laughs> show. And that's just amazing. And your podcasts are incredible, too. Do you ever I, sleep, by the way? <laughs> you do so I, much. I have a little um, flip chart to my right that I go through. I'm in my office. I'm a real doctor. I see many patients every week, about 40, 45 patients a week. It's a special preventive clinic. Mm -hmm. But I have a little pyramid of health habits. And actually, the foundation is actually sleep. And I both live that. I have a dozen habits I do between blue light blocking glasses and white noise. uh, Sometimes, um, you know, uh, eye masks. Uh, I know some supplements. I tend to rotate between some uh, a little bit of melatonin, a little bit of GABA, a little bit of um, uh, hemp oil, full spectrum CBD at times, you know, know magnesium, uh, and the whole gamut. But the bottom line is, yeah, there's about six to seven hours of pretty deep quality sleep. Sometimes I'll wear that sleep tracking ring that's very popular out there just to keep up with the biohackers and such. So, <laughs> yeah, and actually, I feel, you know, so energetic at age, actually, 60 and a half officially. Um, Nothing hurts, and uh, every day is just more to conquer with really no need to slow down, which I'm pretty grateful for that because, you know, you can't take that for granted, and I do think it's largely a very clean diet for a very long time. Absolutely. Uh, When it comes to the plant-based movement, you've seen the changes. I mean, to be honest, we came to it a little later. We we started going vegetarian in, in 2005, 2004, 2005, and then vegan about eight years ago. Uh, but you've seen it from the 1970s, and you're seeing a major shift, aren't you? Yeah, you know, I think medicine, um, very hopeful, but still, I mean, the biggest one is the food industry, and I don't think any of us would have predicted, if we had predicted, we all would have bought Beyond Meat stock at the IPO, um, whether you, you know, agree with that product or not from a health standpoint, but none of, nobody could have said, you know, from McDonald's very soon internationally to Burger King to, Carl's Jr. to this proliferation of options for the public uh, and acceptance by the public. It doesn't have to be a cow that makes a burger. It can be something that tastes good and uh, they may not fully understand plant-based foods. But that explosion in um, the catering companies, the big food companies, you know, uh, it should have been the medical industry. It should have been hospitals. It should have been schools that led the march for the health Mm -hmm. of the patients, health of the guests, health of the kids. It'll get there because uh, the industry is not going to slow down. But um, yeah, that's delightful to see, even though it's not exactly the sector of optimal health, it's still movement in the right direction. And right. it's the awareness. I always had the sense, your amazing work, my amazing, if we reach 10% of the people, I think that's a lot. And, you know, unfortunately, 90% of the public has never heard of the Alzheimer's solution or the whole heart solution. Mm-hmm. We share books with the, with the word solution in it. Yeah. Um, but I think now, you know, we have the potential to reach way, way larger audience uh, that is suddenly no longer completely resistant to the idea that all vegans are skinny, uh, annoying people that never <laughs> stop talking about all the virtues of a plant-based diet. So the medical community, it's exciting to see now, you know, meetings with a thousand plus people. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we just had, obviously, American Heart Association with 25,000 people. That's got to be the goal when we have massive numbers of doctors being educated on the basic science and the therapy and uh, even maybe the widespread cooking classes and all. And we really, really can bring it into uh, the medical students. We had very, just to close this little segment, um, I am a clinical professor at Wayne State University School of Medicine, Detroit. It's the largest medical school in the United States. Mm -hmm. Each class, about 350 students. Wow. And just this month, we had a day where they were allowed in their curriculum, first-year students, to take about six or seven hours of the day. And there were 10 physicians. Of course, I was there. There were maybe 20 patients. There were some dietitians and health educators, all completely plant-based presenting and cooking and rotating and patient testimonials and just immersing these kids for six, seven hours. These kids heard the word forks over knives, what the hell, game changers. You know, uh, they all amazing. got a copy of the PCRM, Dr. Barnard's book on nutrition. It really was the most hopeful thing I've seen. To, you know, we got to wait, you know, a decade to these first year students are actually out in practice and uh, influencing, but I think it's very, very hopeful, even though I wish it wasn't going to take another five to 10 years to see big shifts. Uh, we definitely wow. agree. We see in our, in our short period, we see immense, in, in the last three years, let's say, we actually detect and sense a, a, a shift in, in public awareness and where we go and we talk to people. I know there's a selection thing, you know, where we go, it's usually people yeah. are aware of it or they're aware of us, but uh, spontaneously in conversations and 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 neurology gatherings. In fact, in AEN they had a whole thing on prevention, and uh, right. which is incredibly hopeful. Having done this kind of work at NIH and Columbia University, all you did was amyloid and tau, and you know these biomarkers repeatedly um, uh, failing, and now you're seeing this preventive shift, which is uh, uh, incredibly positive. Some of the work that you did, I mean, you've published, what is it, six or seven books now? Uh, the sixth book is coming out early 2020. And yeah. in my heyday, I published a lot of peer-reviewed, yes. really hardcore cardiology papers on heart attacks. Uh, I write more blogs than I do peer-reviewed data now. But uh, yeah, I've done a lot of writing. Absolutely. And, and, and the beauty is one of your books is about sex. Another one is, but they're all interrelated. Because yeah. Yeah. to be honest, we were, except for Hachinsky and a couple of other people, we were one of the first people to say that the, at the core, most of these degenerative diseases are vascular in nature. Right. And, and, that, and uh, yeah. that is the bullseye that we so completely share that brain vascular supply is so crucial uh, in terms of aging, cognition, dementia, and maybe some of the advanced diseases like Parkinson's and such. Uh, you, mm -hmm. know, you, you can't have a healthy brain with healthy blood supply, and it may be microvascular, the very small vessels that are hard to image. It might be macrovascular and embolization from carotid disease. But there's no doubt, you know, there was an English physician, and you may know this, you may not, 400 years ago, 1600s, Thomas Sydenham, that said, you're, you know, a man is as old as his art. Of course, mm -hmm. now we wouldn't make it gender specific. Yeah. But that vision and really the confirmation that at least one very solid way to assess uh, aging and uh, interventions is that actually vascular health, vascular age, vascular biology, the endothelium, the magical lining, because we know that's great for the brain, it's great it really for is. social function, it's great for heart. We either, you know, damage our endothelium repeatedly with lifestyle choices, or we heal our endothelium. And the ability of it to heal quickly is one of the most amazing properties of the human body. I just spent the last week or so reading about all the foods that actually promote healing of endothelium, whether it's lining of blood vessels in the coronary arteries, lining of microcirculation of the brain, but it's they're, they're exclusively plant-based. They are some fun ones like wine, coffee, and tea, mm -hmm. uh, and dark chocolate, uh, but you know, um, pomegranates and uh, rosemary and seeds and you know, studies done on raspberries and blueberries and uh, you know, actually the ability to stimulate uh, the, the creation of stem cells called endothelial progenitor cells, yeah. EPCs, through food and release these healing um, cells through food is really just phenomenal. I think it's largely unknown in both the medical world and certainly in the public that uh, every meal is a healing wave or it's a harmful wave, and it isn't hype. It's it's science. Absolutely, it really is. absolutely. It really is. We're so excited that you say that. And you know, um, speaking about endothelium. Um, uh, it, it, 
I, I try not to get negative, but you know, I love the fact that you promote positive foods and positive activities that heal our bodies and you know not necessarily focusing on the negatives of what to stay away because a lot of times when we focus on taking things away people feel deprived and um, there's so much out there that people can do on a regular basis in small increments and and that ends up being beneficial for their heart and for their brain and speaking of endothelium you know being a vascular neurologist i know that um when the arteries are exposed to to toxins and to this harmful lifestyle. You know, there, there's a there's a crazy statistics, and they say that if the capillaries of the brain were stretched out, it would span 400 miles. Let I me mean, just imagine yeah. that the brain being bathed by blood, and if the yeah. endothelium is harmed, then it's going to cause damage. Yeah, there's uh, the statistics that I often lecture on is there's 50,000 miles of arteries uh, throughout the body, so. Uh, substantial number as we'd expect would be in the cerebral circulation. And if you could take all that lining, that single layer of Teflon coating called endothelium, be about eight tennis courts. And people say if you weighed it, it'd be the biggest organ in the body, even bigger than the liver. And you know, it's so sensitive to these decisions. And what I'm fascinated by and what you know I don't think the public knows is it's not just okay, I had some bad habits for the last 10 years. It's each meal. I mean, mm -hmm. each meal exactly. creates a wave that affects our gut lining, that affects release of toxins and endotoxins. They all have an inflammatory impact called metabolic endotoxemia, but it's not to scare people that you're never allowed to deviate and you know, you're, you're committed to uh, some sort of health hell if you uh, had a bad meal, but it does make a difference on uh, whether, in a, and it's that repeated injury, repeated injury. So if you transgress once, I just get back in the saddle and up your plants, up your fruits, up your nuts, your seeds, your whole grains, and uh, you'll decrease that. Um, uh, I, I hate to use the word leaky gut, but uh, mm -hmm. the potential for transmission of toxins, uh, either directly hormones, antibiotics, pesticides, or actually some of that we make in our own microbiome, the endotoxins, the bacterial gram-negative products. And we actually know a lot about it. And then just one fatty meal, one coconut yeah. oil rich meal. And I'm mixed on coconut oil. As a heart doctor, I don't really find it uh, with any support for its health effects and all that saturated fat bothers me. But in the in the realm of what foods cause the bacteria in our colon and our small intestine to release endotoxin toxic products in the blood, coconut oil is about as bad as it gets in um, mm -hmm. in animal research studies. And yeah. we, we're completely on, in line with Absolutely. you with coconut oil for another reason as well with this whole movement of coconut oil for Alzheimer's prevention, which was based on an anecdote of one. Um, uh, nonetheless, uh, <laughs> we, we, we have to deal with it every time we give a talk. Um, uh, well, I just tell you, I don't know if you know this and your listeners might not, but at least it's been said that one of the key um, moments where the coconut oil hype got going was I think it's about 15 years ago, a book got written, a small little paperback called The Coconut Oil Miracle by a gentleman named Bruce Fife, and I think he's a naturopathic doctor. But his other books are like about twisting balloons into dog shapes and all. I'm not <laughs> saying he's not a good guy, I've never met him, but he wasn't exactly an NIH-funded researcher looking at the impact of coconut oil and brain health. I mean, there's so many questions. So it's pointed out sometimes, if you ever see his book on Amazon, look at the book before and judge for yourself if you think that's the advice you want to take. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, coming back to the endothelium, if you, if, you know, saturated fat consumption can actually damage the endothelium in, in the brain. And um, it's, it's actually a gatekeeper to all the neurons and to the brain environment. And if we damage that, hypothetically speaking, it just doesn't make yeah. any sense with all that saturated fat in our system. Yeah. You know, because you know you're a vascular neurologist. Damaged. You know, we 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 make poor food choices, or unfortunately, the quality of food in the United States has uh, you know been degraded by big food industry and pesticides, right. herbicides, uh, Roundup, and all the other factors. So even when we eat well, we're still under some bombardment. But uh, then we get that release of um, endotoxin from the uh, bacteria in our colon. We get injury to the endothelium. There's cardiology words erosion of the endothelium and ulcers in the endothelium. Um, and decreased production of nitric oxide, which is kind of this Teflon that prevents clotting, it prevents atherosclerosis. And all of a sudden, you've got LDL circulating, cholesterol circulating. If you inherited lipoprotein A, the 
25% of us that genetically inherited this uh, very nasty form of um, complex cholesterol lipid molecule. You, know, you have some breaks in your endothelium. We know that there's kind of unregulated uptake of inflammatory uh, markers and lipids, and all of a sudden you got plaque growing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, if we if we can maintain, and there's a few ways you can test for it, but really healthy, healthy endothelium, um, healthy nitric oxide production, you're just going to have a good brain and a good heart. And it really is a plan. It's a, yeah. it's a plan we don't talk about, but you know, maximize your endothelial health. It's what Dr. Sidingham uh, talked about 400 years ago, but now we have some technology to actually test in the patients. It was something I do in my clinic pretty routinely. Wonderful, wonderful. We, we, uh, we are actually doing a paper on the endothelial lining of the brain. Uh, we, we always get this indirect uh, studies and indirect statements like that, um, uh, Alzheimer's is a type 3 diabetes or the fact that uh, it's the leaking of the blood-brain barrier that's the cause not realizing that it's actually one step earlier. It's, it's right. up, upstream. It's, it's the fact that the, le the reason that people are seeing leaky endothelial um, lining of the cerebral spinal fluid is because the damage that was done through whatever you did as far as food is concerned. And then subsequent to that, you see these infections manifest. Subsequent to that, you see insulin resistance. They're all related, but it's yeah. you know, downstream. And, and uh, uh, I want you to take a look. I, I've got, I always have a little model of a blood vessel in my clinic to show patients. But I don't know, you know, you guys are as wise as uh, physicians get, but there's actually on top of our Teflon layer wallpaper endothelium, there's another layer of slime called endothelial glycocalyx. It's mm -hmm. uh, heparin mucopolysaccharides. It's a healthy <laughs> layer, and it actually is one more layer that protects injury if you take a uh, a cigarette or if you eat a burger with uh, fries or you drink a milkshake and all the saturated fat. So actually, we probably damage our endothelial glycocalyx, which then exposes the endothelium and it can get injured. So it's actually a whole sandwich we have to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful system. You know, you've got like two raincoats on to protect your endothelium from getting injured in the rain, but uh, we can we can upset that whole miraculous apple cart. The only other than lifestyle factors, don't smoke, control your blood sugar, cholesterol, blood pressure, uh, fitness, weight, uh, inflammation. There is actually a green seaweed that supposedly promotes integrity of this glycocalyx on top of the endothelium. With some limited human data, it actually improves endothelial function, better blood vessels. So it's always a plant. In this case, it's a green seaweed. It's yes. yeah. definitely not crispy bacon. You know that. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. What's happening on the uh, cardiovascular disease front? I know that you know you've, you've spent your life reversing uh, coronary artery disease. Tell us about that. What, what does it look like at a clinical setting for you? Yeah. Well, um, there's a few observations because um, there's not you know there's there's the very very breakthrough uh, in honor Dr. Ornish and Dr. Elsa. We've said their names before, but there's very few places that a patient actually already far down the road with angina, maybe flunked a stress test, maybe he's had a catheterization, or now we do a lot of CT scans to identify coronary blockage. And who does his research or her research usually on the internet and says, I don't want bypass, I don't want stents, I want to work with a doctor who will work with me in lifestyle. It's one, hard to find a physician, cardiologist usually. I, I can't name 10 of us in the United States. It's a matter of liability. It's a right. matter of confidence. We did have a study in 2007, properly named, and when I say we, the cardiology community, the COURAGE trial, mm -hmm. and in people with symptoms, abnormal stress tests, that they could be watched before they went on to bypass or stents, and there really wasn't any dramatic difference in outcome, and that idea of watchful waiting, instituting lifestyle medication. But it wasn't convincing enough to the general cardiology community, and the general cardiology community is pretty invested in stenting and bypass at hospitals too. It's usually the single biggest source of revenue in a hospital is the cardiology service line, and many cardiologists, of course, are dedicating their lives to cath lab work. Which, if you're in the throes of a heart attack, you want to be in a place that does all that and does it well. But right. there's a lot of procedures being done on people that are very, very far away from a heart attack. So this trial called the Courage Trial, and this indication, I think the name is right, because people do come to me. They, uh, you know, find me from all over. I want to avoid this big procedure. Well, I mean, it takes a courageous patient to make the changes, to 
realize their own cardiologist is probably going to give them grief. Mm. Their family may give them grief. Their primary care doctor, cardiac surgeon. It certainly also, as a physician, it takes courage to say, I'll work with you and institute a plan that um, has proven track record. Now, the reality is it does work, and it's amazing. When people do what Dr. Ornish wrote about in a publication in 1990, even had a previous one, 1983, patients having angina, it'll go away in three, four weeks, which is changing their diet. Mm -hmm. Of course, if they're smoking, but that's pretty rare nowadays. Uh, you know, begin a gentle walking program and manage their stress. They will get much better very quickly. And if they'll stick with it, ultimately, we can demonstrate that stress tests have improved, inflammatory and lipid markers have improved. I use a technique, again, vascular neurologists, I do carotid intimal medial right. testing. A yes. digitized ultrasound because it's so easy. There's no radiation. It's relatively inexpensive. And I, I can't repeat their catheterization over and over because it's invasive, expensive, and uh, not going to be approved by the insurance companies. But I can do this. And I, I have dozens, 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 dozens of people that match what we learned in these trials in the 90s and the 2000s from these pioneers. And it really does work to, uh, to make this massive lifestyle change. Now, what's going on in cardiology specifically is 2007, uh, a dozen years later, uh, our NIH and I think other funding uh, sources, because there was an international study just announced, cost $100 million mm -hmm. to kind of take the COURAGE trial, but blow it up to really, really advance heart disease patients. People having symptoms, men and women, average age 60, very significant abnormal stress tests. And at that point, they were allowed to enter the trial and they were encouraged to get a CT scan of their heart just to make sure they didn't have the most critical of coronary lesions called a left main lesion mm -hmm. that most of us think should probably be addressed by catheterization and perhaps surgery or stent. But the vast majority of them didn't have that and they were randomized to very good medical therapy and lifestyle training, diet, fitness. Many of them, according to just some media reports, adopted uh, plant-based diets. They found that that was one of the magic uh, uh, healing methods that's scientifically proven. The other half went to a catheterization. Most of them got stents, some got bypass. And the results show no difference in death, no difference in cardiovascular death. Um, uh, most endpoints like congestive heart failure, no difference. There was a subgroup of people with kidney disease, which really defines a sicker population. Right. Absolutely no difference whether you say to your doctor, I'd rather not have my chest cracked right now. I really want to get on the proper medication get some education on diet, fitness, cardiac rehabilitation, or the two special kinds of cardiac rehabilitation called the Pritikin Intensive Cardiac Rehabilitation and the Ornish Intensive Cardiac Rehabilitation, which are covered by most insurance companies, and uh, encourage people to go down that route. Now, I'm not very optimistic. This is going to make an enormous immediate change in the way cardiologists practice for the same reason. Hospitals are invested in volume. It's a right. service line and they monitor it. And, uh, you know, ultimately the right, the ethical and the honest scientific answer should take over. It's going to take a little while. Uh, mm -hmm. But really right now, starting immediately, every patient in this sort of situation should be told, of course, we can do a catheterization. We can put in a stent if appropriate. We do bypass if appropriate. But you should know that you're not sacrificing your life by trying to learn how to manage your lifestyle and taking proper medication. Um, and that is very hopeful if patients will either find that on the internet, and I've written already a YouTube blogs very quickly to kind of get the word out that ethically, this is what cardiologists ought to do, put it right out there. My colleagues won't be happy I wrote this time. Yeah. <laughs> ethically or not, if you don't tell a heart patient they have an option of a conservative lifestyle-based plan to improve the health of their endothelium <laughs> and resolve these erosions and these, uh, these plaque ruptures through you know, lifestyle and proper prescription medication. Uh, if you don't do that, you're really not you know, giving informed consent. That's been true for years, but it's even more in the bullseye right now. So I throw that gauntlet out to my colleagues, and I hope patients challenge their docs up. You do this in your clinic, though. I mean, um, yeah, I work with people that it scares me a little bit, but boy, I tell you, I, you know, I have to judge if the patient's really willing to commit to a whole food, plant based. In this instance, no added oil, naturally low fat diet. That's my one little haven that I'm very strict about it if they're yeah. really trying to work with that. Um, you know, medication as needed to manage blood sugar, blood pressure, antiplatelet medication and all. You can't throw all that out, but you might be able to reduce it over time. And, you know, stunning, stunning 
you know, drops in cholesterol. Within a four weeks, you can see total cholesterol drop 100 points if they jump on board. And so, yeah, it's very gratifying. And uh, many patients I take care of are years out from the recommendation by another cardiologist to have bypass or a stent, and they're doing fine. Their stress tests are fine. And I, I suspect they've healed their endothelium, and they've probably to some degree reduced their plaque. We don't have Drano yet. Neither Dr. Ornish or Dr. Asselstyn's studies showed, you know, complete reversal of atherosclerosis. There are very, very few studies out there. Even Mr. Nathan Pritikin uh, uh, believes he reversed all his atherosclerosis because his autopsy showed clean coronary arteries, and he was reported to have had at least clinically coronary disease many years before he died. But, um, wow. but we can even small reductions in the amount of plaque with healthy endothelium on top creates a very stable patient with a very good quality of life uh, mm -hmm. in most you know, situations. When it comes to the brain, we see the, the, the small incremental changes are massive because after the age of 50 or so, the midlife story starts playing out, which means whatever you did in midlife, well, throughout life, but especially in midlife, starts manifesting in about 10 years or so, in 60s or so. And, and you see the blood pressure, the cholesterol, the insulin resistance, leading to massive differences in outcome in the brain. You know, we, we see the white matter disease. In fact, our battleground is not, a, you know, final stroke, but the white matter disease and small vessel disease that we see earlier on. And the difference that we see for those who live a, you know, plant-based healthy lifestyle versus who don't, the massive differences that we see in the MRIs is if we could actually make every patient see those differences, this would, this would change their life. And the brain's ability and its resilience, the, you know, you said it doesn't have to be all the way. I mean, of course, we always say the gold standard is, you know, no oil, no salt, no sugar. But we know that even any increments towards that, Aisha's paper, which is the American Heart Association, the largest study, showed the same thing. Every small increments toward a better health actually gave you longer life, but and when it comes to brain, much lower stroke risk, much lower dementia risk. So I agree with you. Um, I agree. I mean, you know, again, there are those most extreme patients that need the most extreme yeah. program wrapped around them. But I like to teach the American Heart Association simple seven structure, which is know your cholesterol and work to optimize it, your blood sugar, your blood pressure, fitness, better diet than average of plants and grains and uh, legumes, uh, don't smoke, and optimal BMI or body weight. And when you really look at that simple tool, the simple set of American Heart Association calculator for brain outcome, heart outcome, overall, really life uh, span, it's remarkably simple. And it's not a it's not a criteria that requires perfection, except BMI. BMI is you know, body mass index on their criteria is 20 to 25, which in America nowadays is probably you know the toughest goal to hit of all. We've got our president with a BMI of 30.4, so we need a little leadership from above. Yes, absolutely. We really do. We really do. What's uh, uh, What are some of the exciting things that you've um, heard about as far as advanced lab evaluations? You know, yeah, uh, so, some of the other you know, new ones. I, I call my approach to patients high-tech, high-touch, high-fiber. I mean, <laughs> I, really I, have, I really have to find out their lifestyle, their diet, their sleep, their stress, even go back to some trauma in life if they just got wicked food addictions or weight issues and the whole thing. And that takes some time and takes some interest in learning all that. I, I love knowing them a little better. Uh, but I'm, but you know, in high fiber, obviously, I'm recommending a pretty plant-rich or exclusively plant-rich diet to almost all of them. That's the only place you get fiber. Right. Uh, listeners know that. Is there no fiber in a steak? Um, and at the, at the end of the day, though, we need... Um, high tech to really characterize. So mm -hmm. I'm all about digital, you know, vascular imaging or coronary calcium scoring by CT for quantitative assessment of your internal cardiac age and uh, measures like that. But the lab is really where it's happening. It's you know our ability to measure inflammation in the blood, which I'm still kind of bothered that the average internist and family doc is wonderful as you all are if you're listening. I don't very often see a high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Simple test in every lab panel in America. Right. But you can go beyond that. Now, in my field, there's something called myeloperoxidase, a white blood flow inflammatory marker of vascular inflammation, um, LPPLA2, another one. 
Um, you can measure oxidative stress, a urine test called isoprostanes. These actually are not terribly expensive. Uh, they're available through labs like Quest and LabCorp. You just got to have a physician and a checkout slip. So I characterize inflammation to the max. And it's a big problem and we got to work it. And that drives a whole differential. Why do you have inflammation? Is it you're eating sausage egg McMuffins? That's an easy one. Do you have sleep apnea or you haven't seen a dentist in 10 years? Those are mm -hmm. pretty common ones that we got to work on. Um, is it psoriasis, which we think is an external disease, but is very much a systemic disease uh, and creates inflammation and risk of heart disease, risk of diabetes? Go down that path. Lipid evaluation, I mean, there's nothing wrong with just getting a standard uh, cholesterol panel uh, fasting, but for just a couple extra dollars, you can get the advanced uh, NMR lipo profile, where you know the LDL particle number, which particularly in people that are overweight and with metabolic syndrome, it's more accurate. That's been shown without a doubt. It's a more accurate way. And then, as I mentioned once already, but I'll hit home again, I think everybody needs once in their life the lipoprotein A, also called LP little a a inherited cholesterol that affects about 1.7 billion people worldwide. It's one out of every four people. So this is the most common inherited cholesterol cardiovascular risk factor that exists. Um, it's challenging to know what to do with it. But yeah. the idea that, you know, my brother had a heart attack and the doctor said they checked everything, they couldn't find it. I mean, check your own lipoprotein A and check your brother's too, because it's very likely that wasn't tested. The European Society of Cardiology in the fall of 2019 finally broke through and said, we really think everybody should consider having that check once in their life. Uh, from age one, if you inherit it, it's elevated. So it's a lifelong cause of both atherosclerosis. It also causes uh, <coughs> calcification and stenosis of the aortic valve. It, mm -hmm. As many as one out of every seven cases of severe aortic stenosis, a rather bad valve problem. Uh, is actually due to lipoprotein A. It's not just random because there's something called oxidized phospholipids mm -hmm. contained within lipoprotein A particles. It's just this big bad particle that circulates in the blood and loves, it's called sticky cholesterol. If right. you've got a little get back to endothelium, you've had a cigarette or you've had a high fat meal and you have some endothelial damage, man, lipoprotein A loves to just stick on to exposed collagen fibers, uh, and lysine, and uh, it'll just allow a flood of bad actors that cause inflammation and phone cells and that causes. So you should have your lipoprotein A check. You know, homocysteine I check because of the data that we might be able to reduce strokes with folate. Uh, right. I want my patients eating folate-rich foods like green leafy veggies, but uh, I'll supplement if needed. That's one of the few B vitamins that actually has some good randomized data. Right. Um, Beyond that, I mean, I check, although it's getting more expensive or the insurance coverage is less, I do check if I can, uh, APOE, um, I'll let my patients know. Mm -hmm. for, the, you know for your listeners, they may know that's an inherited uh, cholesterol transport system, and you can inherit a pattern that puts you at rather high risk of heart disease and developing Alzheimer's dementia right, right. decades earlier, or you might inherit a very low risk one. And, Again, in the idea there's a term personalized medicine or precision medicine. Uh, I mean, those that come out with a bad result, they're not very happy about it, but it's very motivational if you just twist and say, you know, now we know this, you know, you, you got to read your book. It's always, you got to start by reading the Alzheimer's solution. But, you know, there's going to be so many breakthroughs. Don't get despondent, but right. let's make sure, you, you know, you really, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your blood sugar, your fitness, your sleep. Everything else, your dental health, your oral health, everything is optimized. Right, so, right, right. I mean, the, maybe the biggest new breakthrough, but I don't know that there's immediately a neurologic uh, bridge. There's a few tests out now. Oh, two that uh, are kind of the prognostic tests. So I never would order a thick enzyme in my office. Some people have heard of CPK. You do it in the emergency room if you're a suspected heart attack. I don't want to order in my office if you're a suspected <laughs> heart attack. I'm sending you by ambulance. But now there is one called the high sensitivity troponin assay, mm -hmm. which is not a test you're going to run in a heart attack patient, but it's something you can run in the office to indicate if the heart muscle is undergoing some little bits of injury, necrosis, and the level's elevated. The challenge then is what do you do when it's back? Because it's become more available, it's quite inexpensive in and of itself. But it gives you a little window. Are we dealing with a patient that looks like they have a clear sailing head or not? And 
challenging. And the last one, I will say humbly, I think I've drawn more TMAO levels than any physician in the United States, thousands and thousands wow. and thousands and thousands. I got on board with uh, the lab, Cleveland Heart Lab, right at the beginning in terms of not a financial arrangement, just access and understanding. So again, for anybody not knowing, and there's some brand new data that's really interesting, but um, it, you know, it, the main pathway is if you eat red meat, there's an amino acid, L-carnitine, and if you eat egg yolks, there's a nutrient called L, uh, called choline. And if your microbiome is that of a standard American omnivore, you can convert those two nutrients into a chemical called TMA, trimethylamine, and then your liver can finish the deal and uh, in your blood will appear a molecule or a metabolite called TMAO, trimethylamine anoxide. And now in the last nine years and 1,500 peer-reviewed science papers from all over the world, there's data that TMAO promotes atherosclerosis in arteries, it shuts down HDL, reverse cholesterol, it causes platelets to clump. Um, there's now data about what it does actually directly to your microbiome in an adverse way. Right. Um, and, and that it injures endothelium. That's actually the newest paper I read this weekend that TMAO may actually drop endothelial progenitor cells and harm endothelium directly, even independent of lipids and such. And it's really fascinating because, I mean, people either come back normal or they come back sky high. And when they come back sky high, I ask, I've already asked about their diet or I'll resume their diet. And if they will stop eating red meat and egg yolk, and I check it again in four or six weeks, it drops dramatically off into normal range. If they're not eating a lot of red meat or egg yolk, they're taking supplements. And I just know they're taking L-carnitine in a sports drink and a Red Bull in a uh, workout gym routine or they're... Uh, using phosphatidylcholine, maybe their family doc or their naturopathic doc said it's good for the brain. And again, if you stop it, the level will fall. Um, there's a, you know, there certainly is an approach to adopting a whole food plant-based diet, and you won't likely be able to produce TMAO at that right. point, which is a, a good outcome there. Um, so it's really it's a, just another path. There's there's you know it causes fibrosis in tissues, so it causes cardiac fibrosis and renal fibrosis. I don't know that anybody's looked at um, what it does you know to brain tissue and maybe some of that white matter theoretically yeah. finds right, our right. fibrosis from elevated TMAO levels, but um, it's a real deal. The only controversy about TMAO is that in very deep water ocean fish, it's actually used as a hydraulic system to give them buoyancy under huge pressure. So there are a few fish in the markets that have preformed TMAO in them. It shouldn't be perch and it shouldn't be ocean salmon and it shouldn't be white fish, but kind of strange fish to eat from the ocean bottom. And, and the retort is, because nobody likes to say we should give up eggs and red meat. Uh, there's obviously a backlash from certain members of the community. <laughs> of research community. You know, uh, well, if fish have preformed TMAO and we assume fish are heart healthy, then this whole thing's a bunch of nonsense. Just keep eating whatever you want to eat. It's, again, confusion and let people just decide what to do. Um, it seems to be really only a few fish have preformed TMAO. The majority of the fish the public is eating. It's not even absolutely certain that fish aren't necessarily all that heart healthy. There's one research paper only in a, mm -hmm. in a mouse model that fish may have a pro-atherosclerotic effect on mice aorta, uh, raising the question, you know, can we really conclude absolutely? And I'll tell you this, I'm seeing patient tomorrow morning, my first patient, if my patients are eating a lot of fish, their blood mercury level's high. I do mm -hmm. a sure. mercury level. And that just scares me for what mercury does to the brain, what mercury can do for blood pressure control, uh, mercury may, you know, do for uh, inflammation. So it's, it's, a, it's not grandma and grandpa's world anymore where the oceans and the soil is clean uh, or under tremendous environmental stress. So I just, you know, although the, you know, I don't mind people eating a couple uh, meals of fish a week if that keeps them on board and keeps them happy. But well, they get much more than that. And I'm just going to see either, I'm going to see the mercury level go up. Just hard place to find, but always hiding amongst fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes is a pretty good place to hide. No, and we just yeah. check mercury and lead. I mean, can you imagine how many other chemicals and heavy metals yeah. we're adding to the oceans that are not checked? And, you know, right. fish's bioconcentrators can have a lot of them. 
uh, on the side of detection, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited because we check all those things that you say as well, except for TMAO. We, uh, that's something we might add as well yeah, uh, to awesome. that. But APOE4 and, and uh, sorry, APOEs and, and lipoprotein A, some of them we can't do anything about, um, right. except to say that you know the only evidence so far is lifestyle. But I think uh, as far as the next five years, it's exciting yeah. because with, with blunt mechanisms, just people walking a little more, just eating a little more plants, you're 90 to 95% plants. You have places we're actually visiting uh, uh, the, in the next uh, couple of weeks, we go to uh, Greece, to Nicosia, where people live, uh, yeah, Korea, sorry. Uh, to, um, I'm going to Korea, have boiled yes. coffee, have some boiled coffee, yes. I've never <laughs> been there. there. Yeah. No, we're excited, we're excited. because yeah. that, you know, they lived at the, to 100 years of age with yeah. just some minor changes in life. I mean, imagine if we are able to detect these genetic predeterminations and affect them in the next few years, that will significantly affect uh, longevity and health in general. Absolutely. But right now, I have- won't judge you if you have some olive oil right off the trees, because uh, <laughs> you know, Korea and Crete. I mean, so much of their fat calories are from olive oil, and they've had exceptionally low chronic disease rates and yes. with cognitive function. So, uh, yeah, I'm not a complete believer that oil-free for all. When we talk about you know really good extra virgin olive oil, like you're going to have there is necessarily always verboten. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too, because when, you know, you're a public health person and we are as well, and we always, obviously, uh, when you're working with somebody with disease, you have to be able to tell them what the optimal diet looks like. And when, you know, when somebody comes in with multiple strokes and heart disease and atherosclerosis, obviously you're going to cut out oil and fat as much as possible. But for everybody else who are in this journey towards optimal heart and brain health, you, you kind of identify things and say, you know, try to eliminate the bad things and try to include more of the positive things. And when it comes to olive oil, um, there's obviously in neurology and in brain health, olive oil is is the representation of the Mediterranean diet and that longevity diet. Right. And when Dan Butner, you know, went around and he, he looked at the people and their dietary patterns, olive oil was a major source of, of their foods. But then again, they ate so much more plants and everything else that even if olive oil had a negative impact on health, it was probably canceled out with all the plants, don't you think? Yeah, you know, I... One, I think the purity of olive oil in the blue zones for those that likely have it, Sardinia, of course, has olive oil and Icaria uh, and all, is so different than what people are buying at the grocery store shelf. You know, it's <laughs> hard to translate. That's one aspect. Two, it's that common nutritional statement. You know, what are you replacing when you're adding in extra virgin olive oil? If you eliminated lard and butter and in the older days, trans fat rich hydrogenated vegetable oils, and it was a tremendous upgrade. There's an interesting massive study from the Harvard School of Public Health, maybe early 2018, uh, looking at you know saturated fat from butter, lard, versus monounsaturated fats, which is largely olive oil, and lately mm-hmm. avocado oil has gotten very popular, Yes. to polyunsaturated fats from vegetable oils, which very often are just you know reamed by the health and wellness community as nothing but toxic brew. But... Compared to saturated fat, when you shift calories to monounsaturated fat, olive oil, cardiovascular disease rates, long-term follow-up, over 100,000 people observed, dropped about 10%. Actually, when you shift to polyunsaturated fat vegetable oils, it actually dropped cardiovascular development rates an estimated 23%. So it's, mm. these are association studies. These weren't randomized. They were food frequency questionnaires and all the noise that comes up when you talk about studies like that, although they're amongst the best ever done in the world with repeat food frequency questionnaires. So again, um, in a, I don't know if a perfect world would be an oil-free world. It's a perfect world, I think, for disease reversal, which is a very small slice of everybody. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I'm not a, sure a perfect world can't have you know, very high quality uh, sourced vegetable oils, of uh, which olive oil. And even in cardiology, we have this famous study people forget now called the Leon Heart Trial, mm-hmm. which took post heart attack patients and took away their butter in France and gave them actually canola oil. And they say canola oil, you better get ready to duck because people will throw stones at you. <laughs> Some concept that this is the most toxic brew ever made. But, you know, there was a 72% drop in outcome of prior heart attack patients when they substituted canola oil for butter. So 
um, I think, you know, it's a shift. And then I think overall less is more of all of these, but there's some loud voices, as you mentioned, longevity diet, Dr. Walter Longo would be a very loud proponent of olive oil, although mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever, and I'm pretty familiar with his work, specifically studied olive oil. It's his overall, you know, amazing knowledge of nutrition and physiology. And then I uh, recently was introduced to an integrative cardiologist in Berlin, Dr. Michelson, and I am blanking on his first name, but he has a book out called Natural Cure that's just phenomenal. I hate to say it when I read it, but it's like olive oil everywhere. Yeah, of course, not butter, not lard, not uh, poor quality um, kind of processed fats, but uh, another fairly prominent loud voice with a lot of peer-reviewed data on natural therapies for the cardiovascular system. And uh, you know, I can't flush people like that. They're yeah. they're, they're they're smart people. So agreed, yeah. agreed. Uh, yeah. Same for brain health. When you look at uh, papers that have come out of Rush University, you know Martha Morris's papers on Alzheimer's disease. She was she was the one who framed the the concept of the mind diet. Or Dr. Skarmish yeah. from Columbia University, one of my mentors. You know, looking at Mediterranean diet and the definition of Mediterranean diet. Uh, olive oil was the cornerstone of that diet. So I, I, I suppose uh, you know, to the best of our knowledge today, it's been associated with lower incidence and prevalence of Alzheimer's disease, stroke, and cardiovascular disease in general. Right. Right. I mean, one of the, uh, just since we're talking food, brain, heart, I showed you reading a couple papers that overlap our specialties this weekend. It wasn't even the plan, but I made sure I read them before. But there's a little village. So some some people know that are listening, they'll know the name Ansel Keys, the famous PhD from University of Minneapolis introduced the Mediterranean diet as a concept to the American public with some books he wrote with his high-powered wife, Margaret. Um, But he lived in a uh, little town called Piopi, Italy. I had the pleasure of visiting there about three years ago. It's actually a town of 300 people on the coast south of of Naples, uh, south of Positano by about an hour, hour and a half. But it's it's so small. And there's a museum dedicated to the Mediterranean diet in this town of 300 people. It's well worth going. Um, you can track down the housekeeper's daughter that took care of Dr. Key's family. There uh-huh. just was an interesting area. But just north, the immediate town north of uh, Piopi is a town called Acciaroli. They got very famous. It's a town about a thousand. Got very famous about three, four years ago when the University of California, San Diego cardiologist kind of announced, I've been doing research there. There's tremendous longevity in Acciaroli, Italy, just south of Naples. And they pack rosemary into their olive oils, into their salads, into their baking. They put rosemary in their cheeses, rosemary, rosemary, rosemary. Well, it turns out there's tremendous biological properties of rosemarinic acid. And so I was reading a little bit about the molecular pharmacology of rosemarinic acid for Alzheimer's and vascular dementia drugs. Mm. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, when you start to look at this, always plants, always plants. And I think, you know, herbs and spices are the... any meal that you've added herbs and spices to, yeah. other than maybe lots of salt, you have so upgraded that meal, whether it's, you know, a pizza with oregano, it's a better pizza, but uh, I'll take mine cheeses, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we were, I was, we were kind of incredulous about this one-off food, yeah. you know, the uh, blueberry being the superfood or this yeah. or that. I mean, they're all definitely beneficial. Until we did the, when we were at Cedar sinai we started looking at the retina, retina being the continuation of the brain and we gave these individuals turmeric and with 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 the, yeah. this ligand or this thing that would make it light up or you could see it and it's amazing to see you know cur- curcumin that part of the uh, turmeric that's uh, that's active that actually bound to amyloid and then you mm. realize oh my gosh so it actually works even at that direct of a level where right. it's binding to amyloid and then the body when it finds these two together removes it so I, we, uh, we definitely agree that there are foods, especially, and, and it's always plants, we agree, yeah. that, that not only have an indirect anti-inflammatory, but they have significant direct effects. Right. We're, we're talking about diet, Dr. Khan, um, and I've heard you speak about this many times, and you know, this, it's, it's a little disheartening that a lot of people are fighting over this, you know, the small yeah. disagreements that everybody has. I think you know, most of us agree that you know, plant-predominant or a plant-strong diet is the best diet in the world, you know, uh, but they, they hone in on you know, a few things. It's mostly either fat or animal products. 
Um, and they talk about or they magnify the fact that people who eat a whole food plant-based diet, they have you know, significant nutritional deficiencies. So I just wanted to kind of you know, bring our conversation to that angle. In your, in your practice and in your opinion, yeah. what are some of the common nutrient deficiencies that you have seen yeah. working with your patients who are on a whole food plant-based diet? Yeah, and I agree with you. There's, there's some noise within the plant-based physician community and nutrition community that would be better honestly discussed, but not create ill will, and there is ill will. And similarly, between paleo proponents mm -hmm. and certainly plant-based proponents, there's tremendous occasional conversations. I was on the Joe Rogan show. It was, you know, all a setup. Oh, yes. Pit one against another. And, you know, I knew it. there was no setup in terms of not knowing what you were walking into. But um, honestly, they're both cleaner diets than the average American is eating in uh, L.A. and Detroit. Uh, and paleo espouses, you know, dropping sugar and dropping processed food and usually dropping dairy. Right. Uh, I'm all for all that. And, you know, it, I think it's a better choice. It's not. And some paleo diets are very, very plant-rich. A whole uh, hodgepodge of what that actually means. Uh, I'm not uh, recommending that as a diet, but it's better than eating, you know, Dunkin' Donuts and uh, uh, and uh, sweet tarts and such. Um, but actually, I do measure routinely in my patients. I have a lot of patients. I mean, vitamin D, omega three, you know, all forms of B12 and folate. And I think the most interesting one is actually omega three blood levels. Which again, anybody listening, you can ask your medical team to draw an omega three blood level, or you can go to one of these online labs like WellnessFX or LifeExtension.com and pay. $50 and get an omega-3 blood level. That is the single most frequent deficiency I see is uh, omega-3. And I mm. see it in my omnivores. I see it in my plant eaters. And rarely, I don't see it in somebody eating a lot of fish, but then their blood mercury levels up. Not always, <laughs> but quite typically. Um, and, you know, though the pendulum has swung, there's pretty convincing data that cardiovascular health certainly triglyceride control, uh, whether you do it through pharmacologic agents or you do it through food, is going to be more optimal. Uh, insulin sensitivity, more optimal with good omega-3 intake and good omega-3 blood levels. You know, certainly brain health, uh, I don't need to tell you that, seems to be tied to good omega-3 intake. You know, if a listener doesn't know, we can't make omega-3. We're completely dependent on uh, our diet and maybe our diet and supplements if needed. So uh, I'm like a freak in my office because every patient walks out with a box of ground flaxseed that they have to start using two <laughs> tablespoons a day. I don't, That's these are the great. simplest little things, but I, I literally have dozens of boxes. It's Amazing. Uh, just a little, you know, when you, when they leave the office with something, they're much more likely to develop it as a habit. I will right. use some algal based, omega-3, but I'm checking a blood level first and really working to optimize that. Um, one of my favorite kind of um, voices in the health and wellness community is uh, maybe a little less known, Russell Jaffe, MD, PhD, J-A-F-F-E. -F -F -E. hmm. Wonderful research over the years okay. and wonderful YouTubes, but he has, he calls them his eight predictive biomarkers of long-term health and wellness. And adequate omega-3 blood levels is one of mm -hmm. uh, the ones that stands up to peer-reviewed literature. He's a pretty high-level scientist. Um, if you want to avoid disease and optimize your health and optimize your brain health and cardiovascular health, figure out how to get more, you know, a higher blood level, whether it's chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, leafy greens. Um, again, not, not a big fan of I, hemp hearts. I'm not a big fan of hemp oil. But um, lately, you know, the ability to supplement with algae-based um, Agents, if you can't do it with food alone, is is nice and probably a little cleaner route than fish oil. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, it's a, I think it's a hugely important and largely you know overlooked nutritional deficiency. Why do certain vegans not feel great? Um, you know, is it poor food choices? Is they still got a microbiome that represents you know the burgers they ate three weeks ago, or is it that they're just not uh, being instructed to you know hit a home run on some of these core nutrients? Correct. On the brain side, I think one prospective uh, study that, that showed positive effect, I, and I always feel better when it's repeated by somebody else, and uh, uh, so we're waiting for that. But then there's a lot of cross-sectional data that shows that, and, and I'm, I'm incredulous with the, I'm, I'm a little, uh, you know, we worried about inter misinterpreting or extrapolating or saying too much about the data. 
uh, that's cross-sectional where grains that were smaller, that were more diseased, had lower omega-3 levels. Uh, omega, right. uh, so, but there's enough line of evidence to, to tell you that um, uh, you should be aware of that because that's the yeah. one fat in your body that the brain needs. You know, some, a friend of ours or somebody that you and I and all of us know, we're not going to name names, he says, the brain is made of mostly fat, therefore we need fat. Well, that's wrong. Yeah, That's I wrong agree. at so many le levels. Um, well, we, were, we were talking about this before we went on. That, that new to me is the fact that I didn't realize that your blood cholesterol and lipoproteins can't cross the blood-brain barrier. Most of the cholesterol in the brain is made internal to the brain. Uh, every cell in the body that has a nucleus can make cholesterol. And so, you know, if your cholesterol is 120, 130 in the peripheral blood, which is where we measure it, you still may, and, and that's really good level now for a cardiac patient by kind of worldwide consensus for lowering the risk of future events or developing disease, try and do it naturally with diet, it'd be great. But that doesn't mean you're not making ample, ample, ample cholesterol. I don't think we know a way to do that. You know, there's no CSF, and not everybody wants a spinal tap anyways, but there's no way to really know about your, uh, your brain uh, cholesterol level in life. I don't think right. so. Correct, and also whether it vacillates from, uh, you know, the, the level of complexity of how to detect these things also depends on you know, how they're interacting with every meal, with every, you know, we say that, assume you have Alzheimer's. Um, it's not a popular thing when we give talks, they say, somebody invariably asks, how do I know if I have Alzheimer's? I say, you do, and does your neighbor and everybody else? Because it's not a point, it's, it's a risk. And assume you have a risk and we know what lowers that risk. The same is true for heart disease. Assume you, assume you have the risk, and if you live a certain way, you significantly reduce that risk. Right. Absolutely. Dr. Khan, there's um, there's a subgroup of uh, individuals in the whole food plant-based world that are now concerned about taking omega-3 fatty acid supplements because, you know, they've uh, there, there's some conversation about, you know, omega-3 fatty acid supplements being associated with cancer. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, that's just popped up in the last three, four weeks, a lot of emails and questions. Um, I felt obligated to watch a couple of YouTubes where that was coming from. I'm a very prominent physician that I respect a lot, but the references were 2010, 2012, 2013. I, it's a conversation that's been on and off, but there really didn't seem to be any new data point that should scare the public. Um, again, in the cardiovascular world, the there have been a number of massive omega-3 studies in the last 12 months. One is using a pure EPA form in people with metabolic syndrome, and triglycerides 250 to 500, which is a little lower than what was the FDA approved uh, blood level to prescribe some of these EPA, pure EPA uh, fish derived omega 3s. And this particular product in that kind of modest hypertriglyceridemia, insulin resistant range, had a very large impact on reducing cardiac risk. So the pendulum has come back in cardiovascular to write prescriptions for certain specialty omega 3s. Um, I, I don't buy it. I, I don't buy the cancer risk. I mean, and if it is, I wonder about the purity and biotoxicity of some of these products, which is why I'd much rather try and do it with food or try and do it with algal mm -hmm. supplements. But again, we still have this little cardiovascular niche. There was the massive Harvard-based vital trial where they used a gram a day of omega-3 and a right. thousand international units of vitamin D3. A lot of data before said the 1,000 uh, milligrams, uh, one gram, 1,000 milligrams of omega-3 supplements get you some down the road, but that's not really what's going to uh, turn uh, a study positive. It may take 1.8 grams and above. So I think they may have underdosed the vital trial, but it's not going to be repeated again. Yeah, yeah. Too big. Uh, absolutely. It really is. It really is. What, what are your, what's next? What are your hopes as far as, coming to a consensus as far as prevention is concerned, where are we moving with that? I know that yeah. there's not a lot of, I, I think people like yourselves who are you know, uh, proponents of, of prevention and healthy living, um, the bigger organizations like the American Heart Association or the Alzheimer's Association, they don't really allow for that, for that message to be propelled on their platform. So, what do, you, what do yeah, we do? It's, it's getting better. I mean, even at least within the cardiology uh, groups, the American College of Cardiology has a nutrition uh, group now that includes some of our friends, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Robert Osfeld, Dr. Uh, Ornish, and such. And they put out 
comments and guidelines, and I think they're seen, and I think, you know, there's an awareness, this latest, you know, large trial I mentioned a little bit ago that didn't favor bypass and stents as a first pass is going to require more physicians to get more knowledgeable. The patient's going to look at them and say, I want to do that lifestyle conservative thing. What does that mean? Can you teach me? And I hope they just flip them a copy of Forks Over Knives or yeah. your book or my book or, you know, somebody's book, get them going. Um, but I, I do, I'm encouraged. I think more and more docs are getting involved in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and Plantrition Project and getting schooled. Again, I think it's that younger group. Yeah. We're going to have to let a little older tear phase out. <laughs> I, I hope we see more proliferation of this wonderful fact that there are insurance covered intensive cardiac rehab programs. I kind of was joking on social media this weekend when this large trial came out. And we need to shrink hospitals and we need to expand produce departments and farmers <laughs> markets. And truly, we're going to need to potentially expand cardiac rehab programs to accommodate people that have significant disease but really want to work and now have perhaps the confidence to say they want to work. So I'm pretty hopeful. I just don't think it's going to be tomorrow, but uh, a lot more discussion about it. I, I will just say, Hospital administrators, if you're watching, if you're listening, you got to buck up and get your food healthy because that is the, you know, the biggest disappointment. I walk in the university hospital has a Wendy's in the lobby. I mean, I'm on staff. It's, it's, there is no moral, ethical, physiologic reason you could ever justify. There's only, you know, the almighty dollar that justifies that. And, you know, we've all seen that until we have bacon free and hot dog free and whole food strong diets for patients like Montefiore Medical Center has done a good job and yes. Lee, Lee Memorial Hospital System and uh, Florida and some other, you know, wonderful examples, but they're still, uh, they're still a vast minority. It's just terrible. I'm sure you see it when you walk in the hospital too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Thank you for being an inspiration. Uh, thank you for uh, trying to heal our hearts and minds and uh, for providing this, this beautiful path towards health and wellness. And you know, you're one of the pioneers and I, I remember reading your books as a resident and you were just, you know, you're such an incredible source of true information towards true health. And well, we're grateful to you. you know, my, patients, my patients walk in the waiting room where your book is on the coffee table and your children's book right next to it. So oh, I get funny. two generations of Shurzai <laughs> education from my patients. No, I, I, can't, I can't remember the number of times I've given away the plant-based solution. Thank your you. book, The Plant-Based Solution, was just incredible because it's a really comprehensive source of information for people to, to live a great life. So thank you. thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You, Same as to well. you. Thank Have you. a great one.